listen to words when you people sing? You're not going to be wrong. Well, Psalm 84, okay. Okay, no good thing will, we, will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Um, and when God gives us things that we don't deserve, what's that called? Grace. That song it talked about common grace, how the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The, the, we, we all receive good things from God's hand, but especially those who walk uprightly, those who are his. Uh, he will withhold no good thing from us because we are his children. And by the way, sometimes the things that we think are good for ourselves aren't. And sometimes things that we think are bad for us are good for us. That's the kind of father that, that God is. Well, one of our songs that we just sung, um, it was, um, It is Well With My Soul. And the, the one verse goes like this, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall re- resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Uh, that passage, or that the scriptures which that song references, of course, are talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we as Christians, as believers, we think of that as an amazing, exciting thing. We, we can't wait. The scripture tells us when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The scripture tells us that he will establish every everlasting righteousness when he returns. That he will reign and we will reign with him. It's something that uh, we, can, we can hardly uh, imagine how wonderful it's going to be. But for the majority of the world that will live at that time and for the majority of the world that has lived throughout all history, that will be a terrible event. That will be a frightening event. It will be a sad event. People will mourn. People from every tribe and nation will mourn. Some of them will mourn because they know that they can never submit to the ruler, the king, the God that has descended to return for his people because they are not his people. So today we're going to deal with a difficult passage in, in the book of Isaiah. It's, it's not difficult to understand. Difficult to receive, though, because there is so much in the book of Isaiah, so much detail about how God will judge, and particularly how Christ will judge when he returns. We looked at chapter 3, just or chapter 33, just a couple of weeks ago. And for that message, I sort of revamped an, a very old message by a fellow named Jonathan Edwards. It was called Sinners in Zion Tenderly Warned. Does anybody want to give me a very quick definition of Zion? Anyone who was here? As it is used in that passage. The church. Okay. Um, it, Zion has more than one level of meaning. In one sense, it represents the literal city of Jerusalem where Jesus will reign. In another sense, it can represent the visible church, the church that everybody sees, 
uh, but that contains people who don't really belong in it. And in the third sense, it can represent the true church of Jesus Christ, which uh, nobody has ever seen all at once except God, because only the Lord knows those that are truly his. He knows where the sinners are in Zion, and he has promised that he will punish and that there will be retribution and wrath and eternal punishment for those who profess to be in Zion, to profess to be in church, to, who profess to believe in Jesus, but their hearts are far from him. There will be even a greater level of judgment for sinners in Zion than for sinners in the rest of the world. Well, today we're going to look and we're going to contrast. We're going to see two chapters that contrast not sinners in Zion, but true Zion, and those who are not just simply those who are unbelievers, those who are against God. Uh, there, there are two chapters. They, they, you, I don't recommend that you read chapter 34 unless you continue into chapter 35 because you're liable to be left in a state of despair just reading chapter 34. These go together. They're two sides sort of of the same coin. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 34. Message today is called Wrath, Wrath, W-R-A-T-H, which just means anger, fierce anger. Wrath and redemption. Redemption has the idea of ransom, of paying the price to buy back something that is yours. And the actor, the, the one that dispenses both wrath and redemption in these two chapters is God himself. Now, you may have a concept of God where there is no anger involved, there is no wrath involved, that he is only love and that he could never do anything wrathful because that would contradict his nature. God is perfect, and in his wrath, he is perfect. He has every reason to be angry, and when he is angry, it is a holy, consuming anger. Just as he is, when he is, uh, when he loves, and he always loves, it is a perfect, um, perfect, redeeming, saving love. Those are never in conflict with each other, because God is big enough to be perfect in all of his attributes. So today we're going to look at uh, both his wrath and redemption. Chapter 34 focuses primarily on his wrath, and chapter 35 focuses on his redemption. Chapter 34 focuses on the nations of the world who are kind of funneled down and epitomized in a nation called Edom, which is the historical descendants of Esau, who sold his birthright, and then Jacob became the one, was the one that God chose uh, in order to be the father of, of his people and ultimately of Jesus Christ. As we look at wrath and redemption, we're going to use several headings just to divide up the content here. First, we're going to look at the fact that the Lord has a word for the world. The Lord has a word for the world. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to say that the Lord has a sword for the slaughter. And that is found in the next few verses, from verses uh, 5 through 7. We're going to see that the Lord has a day for destruction in verses 8 through 
13, or 8 through 17, pardon me, we're going to see that the Lord has a plan for his people. That's where we kind of turn the corner into the redemption. The Lord has a plan for his people. And finally, we're going to see in verses 8 through 10 of uh, chapter 35 that the Lord has a highway for the holy. Now, those might not make sense until we get rolling, but I assure you, if you stick with me, I'll try not to be too verbose today. There's two chapters to get through. Uh, but if you stick with it, you will you will be rewarded because there is much blessing in seeing this bird's eye view of the kindness and severity of God. We, we should never look at those things separately because we, we can become complacent about sin if we don't understand God's attitude toward it. All right, first of all, let's, uh, I'm just going to read as we go through this. I won't read all the way through at once, so, but we will go through the whole chapter, uh, both chapters. First, let's see that the, the Lord has a word for the world. Verses 1 through 5. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and is furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the skies of all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. There's our line from uh, the song we sing. And their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now that is a terrible picture of God. And I, I use terrible in the, the old way, where terrible just has to do with um, the, the might and the fury and the strength of God. God is a dangerous God, according to this picture. You don't want to fall into the hands of that living God if you are in any way considered unworthy to enter his presence. He's a consuming fire, Hebrews says. But this is the Lord's word for the world. Notice it's not just a word for one nation or another nation. You can go from Isaiah chapters 13 all the way almost through to 30, 33. Um, and most of those chapters in there are judgments on specific nations. And if it were just those chapters, you might, you might be able to say, well, I guess he never said anything specifically about Canada. We might be okay, you know. Maybe God's wrath is not coming upon us as a nation. Well, we know that in the end, and this, is, this passage is about the end, when God comes in judgment, there will not be one nation in the world that God is not coming in judgment against. There will be not one that escapes this wrath that comes. And he wants everyone in all of these nations to hear. He wants the whole world to hear this. 
He's enraged at all the nations, but he is also, he wants the earth to hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Now, I'm going to say right now that God's wrath in this passage is not directed at true Zion. God's wrath is not directed at his people because God's way of working is that he redeems from out of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue a people for himself so that, that he will have, a, a, when he reigns on this earth, there will be representatives from every tribe and nation in the world. But his word is a word of destruction. Look at verse 2. It says, The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Does that fit? Does that fit the paradigm, the mental image that you have in your mind of God? If it does fit an image that you have in your mind of God, check yourself, because if you've got an image of God in your mind, it's probably an idol anyway. We can, we're idol factories. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. Um, but it is part, it is an attribute of God we need to see. And I, just, to, just to assure you that this is not the Old Testament God as opposed to the New Testament God, I want to take you to what we studied a couple of months ago in Romans chapter 1. And starting at verse 18, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The wrath of God revealed from heaven. Paul is speaking present tense. And he's saying it's happening now. And as we heap up wrath against ourselves by disobeying God, it's going to heap up more and more. And then it's going to tip the scales and there will be a final judgment. Um, in Romans 1 verse 24, just going down in the same passage, it says that he gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. There's another giving over. It's God pulling back his common grace and saying, you want to do that? You go ahead and do that. You will pay the consequences. Then he says in verse 26 that, that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And it talks about homosexuality and, and lesbianism in there and, and how it, even their flesh and how they respond and the natural desires of the heart are corrupted by it. And then finally in verse 28, he gave them over to a debased or a reprobate mind. This is exactly what God is talking about here. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. This is the judgment that is coming on every nation in the world and on every individual in that world who is not part of Zion, of true Zion. I want to uh, read some other scriptures to show that this language, it is not just Old Testament figurative language. It is apocalyptic language. These things are going to come upon the earth. Revelation 6 12 to 17, which we all know uh, refers to the outpouring of God's wrath at the end of the age. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So you got the stars falling out of the sky, same image. Uh, the, the, the sun becoming dark, exactly the same 
type of language that Isaiah uses. The sky vanished like a scroll. There's that scroll again. You can picture it, this scroll rolling up and the expanse just... I don't know what it means. Maybe it's some kind of nuclear explosion or something. The, the sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. Exactly the same picture, exactly the same event is in view here in Isaiah. Um, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And remember, this is not a specific word to a specific group. This is the judgment that is coming on the nations. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. There you have that image again. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and the tribes of of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The tribes will mourn when they see the Son of Man on the clouds. In the Revelation passage, you see them running, you see them hiding. Those people will be mourning because they're fearful, because they know that they cannot stand under this wrath. Perhaps at this time there will also be, in effect, I know there will be people who are mourning over their own sin, not in defiance, not in, oh, poor me, I can't submit to him, so he's going to kill me. But I, woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live in a, amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's going to be that prostration before his presence. And I believe all Israel who is alive at that time will repent and mourn for him whom they have pierced. They will recognize their crucified Messiah and their resurrected Messiah and their returning Messiah all at once. All of that, all of that blindness and, and deafness to the gospel will be swept away and they will turn to him at that point. One more passage. Joel chapter 2. This is the passage that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. He says, and I will show wonders in heavens and on the earth. This is God speaking through the prophet Joel. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass, here's the redemption in this, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So as Christ uh, Christ returns, there will also be a gathering that happens. And Matthew 24 pictures this as he will gather his elect from the from one end of the heavens to the others and from the four winds, in other words, the four directions of the earth, there's going to be a massive gathering to Christ. These are the people who will not be mourning 
these are the people who will be rejoicing at his return. And if I'm alive then, I know that I will be one who's rejoicing. I know that I'm going to be ashamed of some things that he sees with his eyes of fire. And there, there's going to be sins that I hadn't even been aware of, but when I see him face to face, boy, I'm going to see everything. I'm going to know. But I'm going to bow in hum- humble adoration before him, and I'm going to proclaim his lordship. And my knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I will know that my sin is paid for because he is the one who was crucified. He is the one who was pierced, who was wounded, who was pierced for my iniquities. And the chastisement that brought me peace with God was upon him. So, at this point... The Lord's word for the world in our text is coming judgment. But even in that judgment, we know there is redemption. Number two, the Lord has a sword for the slaughter. The Lord has a sword for the slaughter. Let's look at verse six. The Lord has a sword. It is sated or gorged with blood. It is gorged with fat. And the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, the image here is of a sword. You might, uh, a better image might be a, a knife or a dagger that is used in a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the priest would have a knife, or you'd call it a sword, which was used to basically... Um, slit the throat of the animal, let out its blood, and cut it up for use uh, and for sacrifice upon the altar. Um, That is uh, an old covenant. That system no longer exists for Christians. But the image here is of a sacrifice. Now, we know from the book of Leviticus that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we know from the whole of Scripture that the wages of sin is death. From Genesis 1 to Romans 3, uh, and to the final judgment, we know that the wages of sin is death. So God is here judging, and the metaphor that's used here is he is judging with the sword. Now, way back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 20, we, uh, we saw how God, despite all of the sin that is piled up in the hearts of human beings and in spite of the fact that the whole head is sick from the top top of the head to the bottom of the foot there is disease there is spiritual sickness there's nothing good in man yet God makes this amazing request he said come now it's not a request it's almost a it's a it's a summons come now let us reason together says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as crimson, they shall become wool. This is an offer of pardon. It's an offer of forgiveness. And the condition is that you come and reason with God. When you come and reason with God, it isn't um, convincing God that you are righteous. That will never work. Because God is God. He knows better. You know better. If you're honest with yourself... So he says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. In other words, if you are on God's terms, if you submit to his terms, 
And there's only one way that a person can be willing and obedient to the Lord, and that is not through his own righteousness, but by submitting himself to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that, he is, that the sin is paid for, that I'm covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. He says, well, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. You shall be eaten by the sword. That's exactly what we see happening in that passage in, in Isaiah. The sword is devouring the nation of Edom as a sacrifice. We need to understand that Edom here is historically it's the descendants of Esau. But Edom here has a, a spiritual meaning. It's like all of the nations of the world kind of put together and uh, into this little ball called Edom. And Edom is, uh, is chosen because Esau, the, its founder, rebelled against God, spurned his birthright, um, and therefore God blessed, uh, God blessed Jacob rather than Esau. God chose one brother over the other. Uh, but Esau and his descendants perpetually tormented Israel. They pursued them from here to there. And they actually mocked them and taunted them when they were carried off as captives to Babylon later on. So Edom was a, a, a terrible scourge and just a very wicked nation. So you need to keep that meaning in mind. Edom is sort of like a, a, a sum of all of the evil in the world in this passage. Although there was literal judgment on that nation. Um, so... In our text it says, For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, the great slaughter in the land of Edom. And now he's, ta- he's using the, the language of sacrifice of lambs and goats, but he's talking about people. He's talking about shedding of blood. Later on in Isaiah 63, so the, the, the book is almost framed by these images of slaughter. Uh, one of the later chapters in the book um, It says this of Edom, Who is he who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now listen to who it is. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. There is only one who can claim that title, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It's Jesus. And he's the one with with, who is dressed in this fine attire, but look, look as this description continues. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? The hem of his garment, probably a pristine white garment, is covered in crimson, in red. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered my garments and stained my apparel. That's the sword. That is the sword that is directed against Edom, which in this case represents the enemies of God. Edom had a fortress, what is now Petra, and they thought it was an impenetrable fortress. And in the prophetic scriptures, God promises to bring him down from his lofty perch. He's got a uh, the, the, the idea is that it is man exalting himself against God. So that is the sword for the slaughter. Now we know that this is coming. 
But the next section here that we want to see is that there is a specific day. God already has it planned out. He knows exactly when Christ will come. When Jesus was alive on this earth, he himself, because he um, just uh, withheld himself and, and, and separated himself from some of the, uh, some of the exercise of his div- divine attributes, at that time he didn't even know the hour of his return. I believe he knows now. But this is God. God knows he has a day fixed and set when this judgment will take place. So I want to give you some some scripture. Um, First of all, we'll look right in our text here. So the Lord has a day for destruction. That's um, point number three. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The Lord has a day of vengeance. He has it in his mind. There is no way to stop this. It is coming. Um, And in passing here, even though it's very important, I'll I'll mention it in passing. It says, a year of recompense, recompense for the cause of Zion. The vengeance is God's wrath poured out against the enemies of Zion. The recompense is God coming to the aid of his people in Zion in mercy. Notice the time difference between the vengeance of God and the recompense of God. A day of vengeance, a year of recompense, a year of redemption. That is the grace of God. His wrath is fierce, it is hot when it comes, but God has a heart to redeem and to restore righteousness for his people. But let's focus on this day of wrath for the time being. We'll get to that uh, recompense a little bit later. This is what's going to happen. Now, these are figurative images. And when you read them, you're going to think of a certain place, a very warm place, not tropically warm, a lot warmer than that. Um, And yet they, uh, they apply in one sense as a sort of a hyperbole of the actual nation of Edom and the territory, which is just in the su- below Israel. It's a very dry, um, arid, uninhabited, hostile place. So that has been literally fulfilled in that sense. But there's more. There's, there's everlasting language in this passage. It says, <clears throat> And the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch. Pitch is tar or resin. It's a very sticky, flammable substance. And her soil into sulfur. You know that sulfur is one of the ingredients of gunpowder. And um, it it, it burns. And it smells. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now that... Those images fit with other images that we have of the lake of fire of, or of um, eternal retribution and of punishment. But this is Isaiah's way of saying God's wrath is coming 
and it is severe and it is everlasting. Then it goes on to some passages or some discussion of some animals. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. Um, some of these translations, nobody knows whether it was really a porcupine, but it's, it's the best guess that they have. Okay? What you need to know about these animals, that under the Jewish law they would be unclean, and that they would actually be repulsive to the people to whom this is written. And many of the animals that are mentioned here also would be um, deities or, or, or false gods or demons that the people of Assyria and these the evil nations, they would, they would worship these things. So in, in essence, what I think Isaiah is saying, this is a place where the... There's, there's demonic, rampant wickedness and uncleanness and desolateness. Uh, it's a place that is absolutely the worst. I mean, we can't even imagine how bad it is. It says, he shall stretch out the line of confusion over it, the plumb line of emptiness. Pedro, what's a plumb line? Okay, you, you hang a, a piece of lead on the end to show whether your, your wall is straight, right? Is, that's the idea. And then the other one, so he's got a plumb line and he's got a, a measuring line. Now, he calls this, this destruction is called confusion and it's called emptiness. But it is calculated and it is measured. This isn't random. This is designed punishment. That God is keeping for this day that he has set aside. It's nobles. There is none. There's no one to call it a kingdom. In other words, there's, there's no government. It's so desolate, there isn't even any kind of um, government set up. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. Thorns and thistles some of the first evidences of sin in the scripture. You know, Adam, the curse upon him was that when he sowed, he would have to bring forth food from the land by the sweat of his brow and that thorns and thistles would grow up in it. It's a, it's a desolate image. It's an image of judgment. It shall be the haunt of jackals. A jackal, of course, is a, a wolf-like or a dog-like animal, an abode for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. Now we get into some pretty specific images here. First of all, there's the wild goat or the satyr shall cry to his fellow. In almost, or in many cultures, that wild goat or that image of a satyr is, is actually associated with Satan. Okay? Uh, then there's another one here. Uh, indeed, where the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place, resting place. the Hebrew word for that night bird is Lilith, um, who is, who, or actually, I'm, I'm not saying that Lilith actually, actually exists, but the Assyrians and some of the people of that region believe that Lilith was a female spirit, a spirit of madness, who would haunt people when they slept and would confuse them and give them thoughts of terror 
at night. And then that's, uh, there's also here, there's this... Um, where the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, where the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Now, if you have a King James Version, it might say where the vultures are gathered. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the vultures being gathered together. So, anyway, these are all images of uncleanness, of absolutely everything that... A, a Jewish believer who was under the law of God and following the law, they would find these things absolutely repulsive. They would find them frightening. And even the pagans in Edom would be frightened by these things. Now, I wanted to read a passage here from Acts chapter 17. Because I want to show you that this day of destruction is something that is spoken of. Um, and it is, again, it is not just an Old Testament wrathful God concept. Because that same God, that same wrath, it is still part of God's character, as is his mercy. So in Acts chapter 17, there is an account of a sermon that the Apostle Paul gave to people in Athens in a place called Mars Hill. And <clears throat> when he delivers this sermon, um, he gets a lot of heat for it. The people don't really appreciate it very much because he seems to be proclaiming in Christ the resurrection of the dead. It was a, a ludicrous concept to them. And he also nailed them with their sin. He basically said everybody is going to be accountable to God. Everyone. And this person who was crucified and raised from the dead, he's the one who's going to be doing the judging. Listen, it says Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Talk about Arnold being back. When Jesus comes back as judge, it is going to be, it's going to be a, a terrible thing. But you see the grace in this. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. To turn from sin and to turn to him. And to trust in him. And to fly to his mercy rather than waiting for him to come in judgment. And then trying to flee from the wrath. Trying to hide in the caves and the mountains. There will be no place to hide when Jesus returns. I want to be one of those who are running to him who are waiting with expectancy and one of those who love the Lord's return. One more passage in Isaiah, early chapter 2, verse 12. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. All right.
Now we've made it through the worst of it, I guess. We need to hear this. In our society, where we have all of our material goods so readily provided, where there is no real, um, there is no real um, pressure on anyone to believe or not believe anything, where we really functionally, do we really believe that we need to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Because we go out and work for it. We, we lack that dependency on the Lord. Um, so we need to be reminded of the reality that we do not see. We need to be reminded of the God who is looking down on our complacency and on our sin, on our self-sufficiency, on our secularism where we have banished God from our thinking. Even many of us as Christians, we think in secular terms. We don't think in terms of the sovereignty of God working all things after the counsel of his will. We need to be reminded who God is and that this world is his and that he is holding this world accountable. All right, let's look at number four. The Lord has a plan for his people. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he has people that he calls his people? That he's not going to let them be destroyed in all of this? The Lord has a plan for his people. We see this in uh, chapter 35, verses 1 through 4. Actually, 1 through 7. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. What a contrast from what we've just seen. We've just seen this very dry land. It's dry, it's hot, it's burning, it's smelly, it's unclean. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. We're talking about Zion now. Talking about what God has in store for his people. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing, joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Uh, Lebanon was famous for its beautiful cedars that were towering and they uh, were good for lumber and were, it was famous all over the world. Carmel was the flat topped mountain of Samaria where. Uh, it was sort of like a, a garden on top of the mountain. It was just a, a beautiful place. Unfortunately, they worshipped idols up there, but in any case, it was uh, a beautiful, lush place, and, and the same with Sharon. They shall, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. That's God's plan for his people. We can see him now with eyes of faith, eyes of faith. We're going to see him face to face. Job said, in my flesh, I shall see him. I am not another. We're not talking about corruptible flesh. We're talking about the new body that we're going to have in the resurrection. We're going to see him face to face. And here is God's encouragement to his people. Strengthen the weak hands 
and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know that you might use the vocabulary, you might use the words if you're a Christian. I am saved. And those are true words. Because when the Lord Jesus brings you to life spiritually, when he takes out your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh, when he breathes into you, as it were, the spirit of life and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you become a new creature, old things are passed away, all things have become new. You become a new person and you are saved. God has you in the palm of his hand. He will keep you as he promised to keep Israel as the apple of his eye. He will never let you go. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, death, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you're saved now, but you're also being saved. You're also being preserved as you walk on this road to Zion. You're being kept. And you also will be saved. Because at the last trumpet, when Jesus comes, there's going to be that gathering of all of those whom Christ has redeemed, a gathering to himself. So he will come and save us. That's the blessed hope of the church, the return of Jesus Christ in redemption. We're looking forward to that. Um, Now, I want to address this vengeance a little bit. There's a really interesting prayer in the book of Revelation. And this is a prayer of the saints that have been, it's the prayer of the souls of the saints because the resurrection has not happened yet. But it is a prayer they're pleading with God to take vengeance upon the people who have shed the blood of the saints. Listen to this. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I don't have it handy, so just give me a second. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Think about it. Those Iraqi children. Some of them may be in this number. Their parents are going to be beheaded because they would not renounce the name of Jesus Christ. Slain because of the word of God. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. 
God loves his people. And though we are persecuted now, God's wrath will, not, will come not only in defense of his own name, of his own righteousness, of his own glory, but will also, Christ will come to avenge those who have been slain for him. This is a picture of Jesus that is not popular, and I don't think many even know about it. But that is, this is our God. But there's also redemption that comes with this. There is also him gathering his own to himself. He will come and save you. Goes on to say, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness. When Isaiah was called into ministry, the Lord touched a coal to his lips and cleansed him. And he gave him his mission, which was was to go and, and preach to people who wouldn't listen to his message. Listen to how God addresses Isaiah in, in chapter 6. He says, um, <clears throat> Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Now listen to the message. What we have here in, in our passage today is a reversal of what God had said would be true of Israel and of Judah, the people that he was preaching to. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not receive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. This is exactly what we're seeing here. And the land is a desolate waste for the Lord removes people far and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in the stump. What we have here in in our passage for today, in Isaiah chapter 35, is the reversal of the blindness and the deafness and the dullness of a people hardened against God. So what God does is he humbles his people. He he judges the sinners in Zion. He calls the nation to repentance. And the people come to him and they repent and they humble themselves before him. And what does he do? He opens their ears. He opens their eyes. The deaf hear. The blind see. There is a revelation of truth that comes and the holy seed, the remnant that is in the stump. And also the, the seed here represents the testimony of Jesus and the, the saving and life-giving power of Jesus. It's there in that stump. Even after the, the forest has burned down, it's still there and God comes and redeems. The Lord redeems Zion. The Lord has a plan for his people and it is a plan 
to save them. It is a plan to bring forth water in the wilderness, living water. Finally, oh, I should just finish this section off. Streams and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So there is a contrast between Edom, which represents judgment, and Zion, which represents redemption. And finally, the last part of our text here is that the Lord has a highway for the holy. Now, of course, the Lord himself is holy, which means he is other. He is separate. There is none like him. He is complete within himself. He is pure. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. But the primary meaning is that he is other, that he is separate from his creation. But there's a highway that shall be there, it says in verse 8. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall ever be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, and the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. Now, just try to get in your mind what this highway is like. First of all, Nothing unclean shall ever pass over it. It is the polar opposite of what we've seen in Edom, where it is just the, the filth and the, the scum and the wickedness of the, the world being consumed. Nothing unclean will ever pass on this. Listen, are, are you clean enough to walk on this highway? Is there a person in this world who has never had an unclean thought or committed a sin even in the mind? As Jesus said, you know, if you commit, if you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. But it says nothing unclean shall pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So it belongs to those who walk on it. Did you know that the early church, one of the most common ways that they referred to their faith and their life was the way. And there were being, being people added to the way. And the, the, the whole thing we call Christianity, they called it the way. And you know why they called it the way? It wasn't because it was the way that they had laid out for themselves. And these are the rules and regulations. We've got to keep these rules and regulations. And we've got to, you know, worship certain times of the day. And we've got to be in church on Saturday or Sunday. Or, and, and we've just got to 
toe the line and that's the way. No, the way was Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus his, himself is the highway to holiness. Jesus himself is the highway to Zion. He is the only entrance into Zion. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Gives me a lot of comfort. But there's one kind of fool that will not be on that highway. That will be the fool that said in his heart, there is no God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. If there's a fool on that way, he's a wise fool. He is someone who understands what he needs to understand. And that is, he has no holiness in himself. The righteousness that he requires, that God requires, is found in Christ. And as long as he is on the way, if he walks, if his feet are on Christ the solid rock, or on Christ the solid road, as this metaphor implies, there is no way that he will go astray. There's security. No lion shall be there, nor shall shall be any ravenous ravenous beast come upon it. Uh, the the devil is actually called a roaring lion who seeks around seeks uh, who goes around seeking who may he may devour. Uh, they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The purchased shall walk there. The ransomed shall walk there. Not people who've bought their way onto the road. That doesn't happen. There's one way onto the road, and it's through the cross. There's one way, there's one entrance, and that is through the body of Christ, the body that was opened up for us, through that new covenant, the covenant of grace. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing, come to Zion with singing. That's ultimate Zion. That's... that's uh, the new Jerusalem. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I want to, as I close here, read from Revelation, and we've been back and forth to Revelation here, but chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. We find out here who the redeemed are. And I trust that you have enough information and you have enough truth from the word of God that there's a a question in your mind that you can answer this question. Am I one of the ransomed in Zion? Does that highway of holiness, does that belong to me? Are my feet on that solid rock of Jesus Christ? Am I covered over over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me? Is that me? Revelation 5, 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now this is a scene in heaven. The four living creatures, I, have, I, I won't even begin to speculate on 
what they represent at this point. The elders, um, again, I won't speculate. They fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. The lamb, I will, I will, this is not speculation, that's Jesus, okay? They fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Okay, they're singing, they're singing in Zion, as it were. And they said this, Worthy are you, Lamb of God, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God. Get this now, from every tribe and lang- language and people and nation. We started this message with a judgment with God's wrath being poured out on the nations. We're finishing with God's mercy being poured out on the nations. And he is ransoming out of every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. He's ransoming, he's purchasing people for himself. And what is the currency of the purchase? Purchase. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, which should have been our blood. He is paying the sin debt, the death debt that we owe for our sin. Because that was what God has ordained and has told us from the very beginning. That the day that you sin against me, the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. That's the penalty. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. And ransomed people out of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And you have made them a kingdom. And priests to our God. Not only has he bought us, but he's willing to share his reign with us. To rule with him. And did you know that every blood-bought believer is a priest of God? Every one of us is a servant in the temple of God. It's, It's not some some sort of special thing that's reserved for some guy who dresses funny and wears a skirt or something like that. It is, it is uh, part of who we are as believers. We're priests of God. We serve in the temple of God. We serve, and our great high priest, of course, is Jesus Christ, who has opened the way into the holy place. Well, that was a, an awful lot to cover, and you've been very patient but I couldn't stop after the first chapter. We just had to get to the redeemed of the Lord returning, coming with singing to Zion. And I hope that, uh, I hope that you will consider carefully the words, especially the word of God. Go back and read those chapters. Just see where you fit in. Because God calls all men everywhere to repent. We are, we, are, we are still in a day of grace. That judgment, God has fixed the day, but it isn't here yet. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, giving us ears to hear. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who has paid the price that we could never pay for our sin and has made us a kingdom and priests. In Jesus' name, amen.